Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast for August 2013. My name is George Miller, and I'm very pleased to say that my guest on this programme is the distinguished writer, essayist, critic and anthologist Ronald Blythe, best known as the author of Aikenfield, Portrait of an English Village, the now classic account of the changing life of rural Suffolk, first published in 1969. On a rare, very wet day earlier this summer, I travelled to Ronald's cottage in a secluded part of the Star Valley in Essex, just over the border with his native Suffolk, to talk to him about his most recent book, The Time by the Sea. This book is a memoir of the years in the mid-1950s which he spent in and around Aldborough in Suffolk. For Blythe, then in his mid-thirties, these were years of apprenticeship, of learning the writer's craft. There were also years of close friendships with the artists John and Christine Nash, with painter Cedric Morris, founder of the East Anglian School of Painting and Drawing, with his mentor as a writer, the poet James Turner, and with Imogen Holst, with whom Blythe worked at the Oldborough Festival, founded by Benjamin Britten and Peter Pears in 1948. It was also a time of discoveries for him in the arts, botany, and the history and geography of his native county. In a wide-ranging interview in the stillness of his house, where the only other sounds were of the rain and the occasional meow of the cat, we talked about his life and writing, then and now, his influences, his association with Benjamin Britten and the festival, and, of course, the sea. Ronald Blythe has long lived in the farmhouse where we recorded this interview, which was once the home of his friends, the Nashies. I began by inviting Ronald to tell me a little about the house and how he came to be there. We're at Bottengom's farm in Wormingford, in the Star Valley. I can actually remember the first time I walked down the track a long time ago. I was a librarian at Colchester, and this tall, rather charming, to me, elderly lady came in. It was Mrs. John Nash. For some reason, which I can't work out now, she asked me to tea, and, and that's how I came here. In those days, was, was, was that before it had been restored? Because you, you were mentioning earlier it had fallen into to disrepair. Was, that, was it still in need of uh, repair then the, when you saw it first? Well, it wasn't so much in need of repair. It was uh, lived in, as the Nashes lived in houses, really. It hadn't got any electricity. Just Aladdin lamps and candles. And it had its own water supply, which it still has. Uh, and lived in... Rather, as artist friends lived in houses like this all over the place, really, with somebody to help build in the garden, uh, and um, the, the sort of rather nice old furniture and lots of paintings, and cats, kind of not quite bohemian, but 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 not at all done up. Part of the house was shut off. And it was it 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 is how people lived with enormous simplicity, really. And what what is the current cat population? Is anyone cat here? Anyone, anyone. Yes, <laughs> they had three. Cats are always here. That's right. Yes. Now, Ronald, you begin your new book with the line, "Listening has been a large part of my craft," and I thought that was that was a wonderful way of of really focusing the reader's attention on something which which does seem to have been a, a running thread through your career, this importance of listening to people, to what they say, but also to nature and to sea and, and, and to music. Can you tell me, was, was that something that you re- realised early on, this, this importance of, of listening? I suppose I was quite unconscious of it, really, except that I'm somewhat solitary, although 
very social with friends and things like that, but I've never lived with anyone and or been married. And so I li- I've lived in these old houses by myself, basically. So there is this quietness. And, and so when people do come, or when I'm in London or anywhere else, I, a lot of writers do this, they listen. And so I'm, I'm very aware of this listening. And I wrote an essay about it once, about this listening. But I'm not doing it self-consciously at all. It wasn't, it wasn't anything you trained yourself to do. It was something that you instinctively did. Far, far from. No, no, I'm not trained to do anything, really. No, no, I, 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 I'm... Well, I look as well, watch, but I, I do listen a lot, yes. I suppose it's a skill which is rather neglected. We're all so often overloaded with with information with visual information and with advertising and with the sounds and all sorts of things that it's it's sometimes difficult to tune in to what's important and that it seems to me that that's what you you do in your work you listen carefully and you attend to what's important i suppose so and, and you uh, might might be on a train or might be abroad and somehow you pick up snatches of conversation writers have always done this really but you're looking at the same time, I think. It's a kind of contemplation which you're not doing for the purpose. You're just wandering about or thinking. And I love the solitude of this house because there are no neighbours and there are no sounds whatsoever. You just might hear a church bell about two miles away and hear all the birds. It's a great place for birds and things like that and river water which is moving all the time. But it's, uh, I'm so used to it. Other people come here and I f- they find it, I think, sort of um, unusual or even r- r- rather worrying. It's <laughs> a quietness. And when we meet you in the beginning of the book, you are living on the, the Suffolk coast and you have determined to be a writer. Can you tell me about how that determination came about? Because you'd, you'd trained to be a librarian and you'd, at some stage you'd made a decision to go and be a writer. Well, I was a poet um, in my early 20s, and I was very influenced by uh, two older poets, the Irish poet W.R. Rogers, and one, a great friend of mine called James Turner, who wrote a great many books, but is now almost forgotten, but a person of enormous significance to me. And I think that um, I felt that I belonged to their kind of world, but my closest friends weren't uh, not writers, they were artists. Uh, I was taken to Cedric Morris when I was 23, about the same time as I met John Nash's wife, who was also an artist, Christine Kullenthal. Uh, and I rather hoped I could be an artist if I couldn't. I was really a writer and a poet. and, and a, So I just, um, just moved as a young man into this circle. So did it feel like a, a bold thing to do, or did it feel like a, a natural thing to do? If it was a slightly wild thing to do, I thought, because they didn't have any money at all. But uh, none of them did. Christine Nash was very disciplined. They were all extremely disciplined. We, we didn't get drunk or hang around or things like that. We wrote and painted and walked and lived in great simplicity. I just had a bicycle, really. So I've lived like this all my life, basically speaking, yes. You made a, a self-conscious decision to place yourself in Suffolk rather than travelling to Paris or going to South America or setting off across the, the European continent. Tell, tell, tell me why that seemed to feel right for you. Well, strange enough, it wasn't the continent, it was Cornwall. This, the two great friends moved to Cornwall. I was really writing, this is James and his wife. And I went down there and then I became a friend of Charles Corsley. 
And they said, oh, why don't you leave cold old Suffolk and go and live in Cornwall? And it was a bit tempting, but all around in Cornwall at that particular time in the 50s, there were people who thought they were living artists' lives, weren't really working at all. And also I felt strongly connected with Suffolk, which is my background for, I suppose, many generations. But I loved going to Cornwall. It seemed a release to get away from it all. But I, I didn't do anything extraordinary. I, I was very, I suppose, well-read. And I be, became a publisher's reader through one of the... W.R. Rogers, really, who was a very lazy man, like the Irish, but, but said I should do something like that. But I, I, I simply wrote stories and essays. And, um, and I wrote my first novel, which was important in those days. And then eventually, uh, um, The Nash's Farm, this little house near Alborough, which I wrote about. There's nothing extraordinary about it, really. I just found places to live and wrote. It was very disciplined, I think, yes. But I saw everything in this kind of um, writer's way, absorbed, really, by everything to do with natural history and people and my my own reading. And eventually, because of, I suppose, reading so much, I was given rather marvellous things to do, like helping to edit the new Wessex edition of Thomas Hardy. And today when we think of Aldborough, we think so much of of Britain and and the festival. But when you first went there, the festival was was relatively young. What what kind of place was it when you you first went to Aldborough? Well, the festival was then about eight or nine years old, and it hadn't gone to Snape. It was all in Albury itself, and it lasted nine days. And I was introduced to Benjamin Britain and Imogen Holst, and she became my kind of guru in a way, or oh, my discipline, most wonderful woman. And Ben was abroad when I first met her. I think he was in Bali. And so we had to do the programme books, and I had to write music notes and do all sorts of things like that. So for quite a while, I did a lot of work for the, for the festival in this literary sense. And in a practical sense, I'm quite a practical person, really. Then, eventually, I, I won't say I ran away from them all, but when Imogen kept saying, the festival is everything, uh, at heart, I felt, for me, it wasn't everything. I must write, because all these festivals, there were very few of them at that particular time, they absorbed all your energy. So, so I continued to do things for Britain and the festival, and, and always. But I, I just found an old farmhouse at a minute village called Debage, D-E-B-A-C-H, near Woodbridge. And I stayed there for 25 years, just, just writing. So was there a, a feeling that the festival and Aldborough could sort of draw you in and, and not let you go and, and sort of become your entire life? Easily, absolutely. It was fascinating and it was absorbing. And they were all um, not so much egotistical, but, um, well, they're great creative people and very demanding and I just wanted this kind of loneliness, this solitude, to be on my own and just to drift about. But I always went to the festivals, and I, I now and again was asked to do some job for them. But basically, I created this kind of just quiet life of my own in, a, in a, an old house where I read and wrote, and people came to see me, or, and, and I helped 
I did quite a lot of it, editing of the classics for uh, the Penguin English Library. And of course, you are now a Penguin Classic author yourself. I have a copy of Aikenfield, which is in the livery of Penguin Classics. Does that does that feel quite a quite a sort of strange position to have attained? Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. I know Penguin Books. They, they, they were looking at all kinds of ways of uh, um, understanding changes in rural existence all over the world. They sent like a German to Russia or a Russian to Tunisia or somewhere. Doing these sociological books, which I'm not a sociologist at all, they said you you do England, and I said I wasn't a sociologist, so, so I just did where I was living, because I was born into that background entirely. I knew all about bell ringing, I knew everything really, and ploughing, and there were thirty villages in Suffolk with field name endings. It comes from the felder, the felling of the trees to make the first common field. In, in here in Saxon times and I had this kind of background knowledge of the countryside which is historic in a way and I was also connected very much with the village churches and the, the kind of to my mind the poetry they created and so, so I read this book I got very worried in case it wasn't sociological enough I took it up to London in a parcel on the train gave it to a girl. They were in Vigo Street, passed it over the counter to her. If they sent it back and wanted it changed, I should be absolutely miserable. But they they didn't. When it was published, when I got to Vigo Street, it had all been filled with sheaves of corn and flowers because of reception and all the critics were there. I was amazed by this, really. So it was a book that you wrote without a without a model, just by following your instinct and your yes. your interest. Yeah, yes, it was. There had been some very good books by people like well, a lot of rural writers, actually wonderful ones, really. But this, the book is very autobiographical. Belonging to Suffolk as you do, did you find it easier to get people to talk to you? Because I think you you emphasise that. Suffolk people can be can be reticent and perhaps they, not, yes, not. They can be, yeah, yes. But I, I simply belonged to that world, so that when I talked to them about anything like this, I I felt it at ease with them. I didn't ask many questions. It was a big period for the tape recorder. It's gone to a lot of people's heads, and a lot of people kept going around with tape recorders. But my book isn't like that at all. The, the notes were taken sometimes, but it's a, it is a work of the imagination, I think. It seemed to me that a lot of shaping has gone into yes. giving it yes. coherence and yeah, right. so that someone's story yeah, really comes poetry. across. Mm. That's right, yes. The poetry was this man James Turner I was talking about earlier. Everything belonging to me went into it, in a sense. You say in the preface to the to the Penguin Classic edition that you write more as a poet than as a, an oral historian, because oral historian wasn't really a category when you when you were. No, it wasn't. Not not really. No, no, that's right. I didn't know how to stop it. Really, then I didn't didn't know what to call it. And there were these field name endings, thirty or so, in Suffolk, and so uh, I called it like the Acre Field. Yes. Aiken Field, and are you surprised by how long its life has been, and how it's it's, it, it's begotten a, a film, and that and there was a sequel published by someone a, a few years ago, Return to Aikenfield It seemed yes, like, as a young Canadian, he went round there. That's right. Yes, the the film was. I tried to prevent first of all Peter Hall. I hadn't met him, although we were born about fourteen miles apart or something. 
but he he wanted to film it and so in my mind it was based for my on the gospel according to matthew by what's his name pasolini pasolini that's right so i told peter hall this and uh, but then he said uh, then i wrote this little kind of film based on the book it's got over 300 people in all non-actors people from suffolk really set between the 1880s the book is until the 1960s and we even grew some corn to reap it with a binder and near my house which i found the field i found all the locations really and benjamin Britten was going to do the score for it so i took peter hall over to meet ben and they hadn't met each other before and then when i was signing this copy for faber and faber in the, with imogen and ben coming down the stairs he said, I can't do the film music for Aiken Field because I'm ill. And um, I was amazed because I always thought him healthy. And he'd, he'd got to have this valve treatment for his heart. And it killed him, this terrible business, really, awful. And so I talked to Peter Hall about this. And we were... I think we were sitting in an old churchyard or something, deciding what music it should be. First of all, we thought of Elgar's first symphony. It was just too magnificent, really, too splendid. And then he talked about... Um, Is it Tippett? Tippett, Michael Tippett, and his um, theme, on a theme of Corelli. And have you, have you felt, Ronald, always at liberty to pursue your writing interests as you, as you think best and not, not constrained to, to follow a particular path because of commercial demands or publishers' requests? I have on the whole. I have done certain things, particularly in, in the critical sense, like for the Penguin English Library, I've done Henry James and especially Thomas Hardy. I'm one of the editors of the New West Edition, as, as I say. I like that kind of scholarly work. I've done a lot of it, really. And, and it has been my way of living. Just made enough money to live on, that sort of thing. I, I did a lot of reviewing for the New York Times book page, whatever it's called, and also for literary magazines here. I don't consider myself to be a critic in the proper sense. I just see myself as being very well read, if I may say so. And do do you have authors that you come back to again and again, ones which are really close to your heart and which really speak to you in ways that, that are special? Well, I read reread Proust in a translation, the Scott Moncrief translation, almost continually, really, because of the pattern. But I also love novelists like Barbara Pym, and I read a lot of poetry. All, all the time. Not, I'm out of date now. I mean, it's, but but I so I tend to read much older writers. And from from reading the Time by the Sea, it's clear that George Crabbe, the the poet, is is well, an important figure. Strange enough, Crabbe was unread. They talked about him all the time at Albury, but I was about the only person who read Crabbe at the period. I was also uh, had a lot to do with um, gardeners and botanists and people who understood plants and things like that, and and also the lives of biography of of, of poets and painters. I was aware of the um, the Crab connection and the Edward Fitzgerald connection. I didn't realise that M. R. James and Wilkie Collins and Thomas Hardy also had connections with Aldborough and and around. Yes, but, uh, um, Hardy 
was there with the woman who had become his second wife and became a friend of this man called Claude. It was Claude who in, in, intrigued me in a, in, a, in a sense. Lady Cranbrook, who is the um, chairman of the Albrook Festival from the very beginning, she's, she's dead and a wonderful person, but at their country house they had a whole library of crab. I think it's bicentenary just before I went to Albrook. And they, I used to read there a lot, a lot of these Suffolk writers. And Fitzgerald lived just below me at Debbage for all these many years. I used to walk, sit by his grave, not because of any melancholy, so, so, but simply it was a lovely churchyard. And, and I was fascinated by his curious life. And you met someone who claimed to have known him, is that, is, or have, have seen him? Y- yes. They hadn't really. They thought they had. No. Because he didn't. He died in eighteen seventy. So yes. that would have been. The, the man who came to help me in the garden saw the one one and only photograph been taken of, of Fitzgerald on the mantelpiece in the kitchen, and he said, "I know he." And I said, "No, you didn't, because he's been dead a long time." But this man, who was illiterate, um, I was very intrigued by people who couldn't read and write, and because they knew things which people who could read and write didn't know. And this man, he's only just died, actually, very old. I, I was enthralled that he knew from this Victorian photograph, I think it was like 1884 or something like that, that uh, he recognised who it was. I think that's one of the things which happens to a person like myself. There's an underlying lo- local history and knowledge of the personalities of people in East Anglia, which hasn't been gained, I don't know where it came from, really. But there's a kind of inner knowledge of their characters and behaviour. Is that all irrevocably being lost as people commute further and travel everywhere by car and are, are, are less rooted? Is it, is, it, is it really vanishing, do you think? Oh, almost gone, I think. Everywhere you go in England now, you, you will see the same fitted carpets and the same television programmes, everything exactly the same. But it wasn't like that for the beginning of my life at, at, at all. I mean, it, it, it is completely different. I remember going to Wales where a friend of mine was a clergyman and sitting in, a, you know, there's long rows of miners' houses in South Wales and I was having tea with an, an elderly couple and he'd been a miner but on the mantelpiece were their grandchildren in their academic dress from the local university and then this woman said to me how she washed her brother's backs from the mine in this room and all in a very short time total changes in life well it wasn't entirely like that in Suffolk well, the poverty was terrible agricultural poverty before the war which I could remember but now it's like everyone else everyone's got a car everyone's got the telly everyone's got all these modern things they all have this they go to uh, restaurants and things and they have a foreign holidays and for someone like you who, as we were saying at the beginning, listens acutely. Language must have changed very greatly from when you were younger. Yeah, it has very, very much. A lot of people still speak with the subtle East Anglian accents, but it's not the kind of way my, which my grandparents spoke, which is a kind of deep, hardy-like sort of language in, in many ways. Mm. Mm. With with particular phrases and vocabulary, Absolutely, and yeah. and also I, I, maybe mm. a way of seeing the world that that language reflects. Yes, they didn't they didn't go far, but they weren't 
They're lives rich in a, a totally different sense, really. I was born in 1922, and so I've witnessed, as a kind of writer, experienced this a total change. <laughs> but but from reading Aikenfield, it's clear that that people in the in the mid 60s had also experienced, you know, from their memories going back to the late 19th century, some of them yes. had also experienced huge upheaval and 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 change. That what the book brings home, I think, is that the change is is almost perpetual. I can't see it with any detachment, really, because it was written a long time ago. And uh, you have to be careful if you are writing not to be overwhelmed by the fame of a book. At the time, it, it, it was written simply by a young man who was, or a youngish man, who, who, who wrote stories and um, poems and essays and things like that, and who edited the classics to keep them for a living. And, and never lived in London, not more than three days in his whole life. Is there, is there a little frustration, perhaps, that Aikenfield has, has rather perhaps drowned out some of the other things that, that there, you've there achieved? Is, there is that sometimes. People always know that one book, rather like Side with the Rosie with Laurie Lee. It's extremely like that, in a, in a sense. Everyone said, author of Aikenfield, when you've written like 30 books... <laughs> <laughs> or editors, but actually, it's been a wonderful life, and uh, nothing to complain of at all. Let me let me ask you a little bit more about about Benjamin Britten, as it's his centenary year, and he's one of the the characters in in the new book. What impression did you have of him before you met him? Was was he a towering presence that no. slightly intimidated you before you met him, or what was? How did he seem to you before? I, I never actually thought of him at all. I just knew that, like me, he came from Suffolk. This house, I might say, is just in Essex, the other side of the river. But we are Suffolk people, really. Even when I was introduced to him as this young writer, he didn't seem to me overwhelmingly grand or anything like, like that. He, I, um, he was, Imogen Holst was the person who, who seemed, the miracle worker when I was concerned, to take me into that kind of world. And, and, and I adored her, and, and, and I wanted to please her all the time. People talked about Ben being difficult, which he was. But exacting was the word, exacting. He corrected you immediately if there's any time. There are a lot of young people doing all these chores for the festival, but I clearly didn't belong to that group at all. So was he, was he difficult to know for everyone, or was there an, an inner circle who who did have sort of access to. Well, he had a following, and he was imperious in many ways, and exact, and extraordinarily kind, but could be um, furious. Or and I hardly spoke to Peter Pierce, although he was often present, but I saw a lot of them, did a lot of work for them, one way or another, little jobs and things like that. And I can see, looking back, that they clearly didn't regard me as they did lots of the other youngsters. Well, if you were if you were writing for the festival, that must have been quite a trusted position. I mean, were, were Britain and Piers looking over your shoulder to see what you were writing, or were given a free hand? Oh, oh no, Piers never said anything at all. Ben might even correct you with a full stop or something. I know he didn't really. No, no, I, I didn't mind what I did. Really, I did all kinds of things which you did for a festival, even just setting the chairs out, sort of thing or going on errands and singing once in the St. Nicholas Cantata. There's nothing I didn't do, really. The thing which worried me was being taken over by them. 
I felt I was cheating to be doing any work there at all. And this friend of mine, James Turner, who went to Cornwall, who was my guru at that time, he more or less told me they would ruin me. He'd have nothing to do with them, sort of thing. But you got out in time. (laughs) My work took over, yes. And was Imogen Holst a sort of counterbalance to Britain, a a sort of equally strong... Well, there were the three of them running the place, but she was. She worked like 20 hours a day. She did all all the orchestration of Britain. remember sitting in her flat and seeing all all the sheets of turn of a screw or something over the coconut matting. But she honoured artists and writers. She revered them. And she was their kind of, not slave, but, I mean, Ben couldn't have worked without her. Uh, she, she was astounding. She was selfless. But she was also brilliant. She was a very good composer. She seemed gentle and... Uh, but it was, she could be hard as nails underneath where she had to everything to perfection. Ronald, the, the sea is a... It's almost like a character in this book. That It's a constant presence, and it clearly had a, a strong attraction for you. And you contrast the Sea of Suffolk and the Sea of Cornwall. And you say that the Sea of Suffolk conversed with you, whereas the Sea in Cornwall was, was more like noise. What, what, what is it about the Sea in Suffolk that, that particularly speaks to you, do you think? I don't know, really. Um, it, it's, it, it, it seems to be demanding and, and huge. And the Cornish Sea was ravishing, noisy, and da- you sat on the headlands, and uh, I used to think of Hardy. So it, it was enchanting, it was theatrical. I remember the first time I was with my mother, when I was about 19, sitting at Land's End, and thinking I could sit here and never do anything ever, just so hypnotised by the sea. Whereas, <laughs> to my mind, the sea around the East Anglia is sort of is telling you all the time to get on with it, work hard, you know, keep warm if you can. I was very conscious of being, I was a little thin lad, really, being so cold. <laughs> that too is a recurring theme, it seems, in the book. I know, and, and Ben didn't seem to notice the cold at all, and all those people, they said they, there was no double glazing, anything like that. The wind, and he's always leaving doors open, and the wind was shooting through the house all the time. And they didn't seem to have any sense of comfort at all, coziness. Whereas when I came to stay with John and Christine Nash in this house, there were velvet door curtains and coal fires and oil lamps and immensely cosy and rather stuffy in a way mm. and they both chain smoked mm. which people did in those days yeah there's, there's a real contrast in the book isn't there between mm. the sea and Aldborough and Britain and the sort of musical festival world mm. and then the Nashies and this house yes. and painting and botany and they're, yeah, yeah. they're, they're very it different worlds aren't they totally different worlds yes they were both intellectual to a degree you had that uh, they were different absolutely and Cedric Morris's house was like that. but Cedric Morris's house at Hadley was a bigger version of this house. It was like France in Suffolk, because their great friend was Elizabeth David, and Cedric illustrated her cookbook. So it was very commonplace now, but going to Cedric's for these rather rough meals, which were gorgeous, and tottering candles, and they lived in Paris all during the 20s, and they had people like Gertrude Stein and people. Uh, it was immensely exciting, sort of made you feel very provincial and hopeless that these people done all these kind of things. There's nothing like that at all, but it's completely different. 
Cedric never went to Aldborough. Mm. So they're, they're completely separate worlds. And it, it seemed to me from the book that you felt more at home here. You felt more at home with the Nashies and, 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 the, and this milieu. Yeah, yes, I, wa- I was. Yes, yes. Um, and that presumably was partly to do with their personalities, but was it also to do with the visual world and, and looking at the world and trying to capture it in, in that way? Well, probably so. And also, I didn't know much about music, really, I suppose, one of the things. Uh, um, I, I loved or or but I still do, do I had these other friends you see who came one of them from the family who actually built Alborough so I saw it in all sorts of different ways uh, but basically I think I was this kind of rather solitary person watching and listening and extremely happy not a joiner I think that might have been when I, I, I tried I can't analyze it really you say it at one point that everybody then seemed to be looking for something whilst you did not seem to be searching for anything and were thought to have found it but I hadn't so you appeared to have yeah. worked out what you wanted and to have got it but you were but in fact you were still yes. working out still yes. trying to search yes. for what you yes what you, I didn't know really what kind of writer I was I loved style the beautiful marvellous writing often in French writing to, to write well I took enormous pains with writing, and I wrote every day, really. I loved the actual creative act of, of writing, and I wrote with just an ordinary pen and typed it up. I was absorbed, really, in, in, in whether it's old-fashioned or not, the, the, the kind of formality, of the, the craft of writing, I think, is what the craft of writing is what I did, yes. You had the the confidence to realise that staying located, staying rooted, was a, was an advantage for a writer. And, and going off in search of something elsewhere wasn't wasn't necessarily a strength. You know, many writers set off in, in search of a subject or a fulfilment. But you had the the confidence from early on to to locate it close to home. I think I was insecure in a way. I, perhaps I hadn't the nerve to go. And live in France or New York or something, I don't know. I have never been able to work that out, really. I've travelled quite a lot. But not but not in sort of search of a subject? No, no, just, just, for, just, pleasure. just for pleasure, that's right. Yes. All writers, great watchers and listeners. I was looking at some old letters from James Turner the other day, and he, he, he said I should have been a novelist, and perhaps I haven't written sufficient fiction. I don't know how to work it out, really. When you look back from, from this vantage point, do the years that you write about in The Time by the Sea, do they seem like a particular critical point in your development? So. I think very much so, yes, yes. I wasn't, I wasn't lonely. I was very much alone. It's not quite the same thing, is it? But I was obviously attracted friends, people who were very good to me and loving, really. I was surrounded, really, by very, very good people, different ways. And is, is writing a daily discipline? It's just work, really, yes. I, I love it. I, I, my study's up over the, this room, and, and you can see it if you like. It's, it's just a room, ancient room, which was Christine's bedroom, packed with books, and a lovely view across here. And I sit, when I go there every morning about nine o'clock, I'm perfectly happy. I feel how, how marvellous to sit in this room. 
And is, is this house full of, it must be, it must be full of memories and layers of, of the decades and the people who've been All here and you've known. Absolutely. I mean, is that, is that, is that forever present in your, in your imagination? Yes, very, very much original, because I was born in a house like this, which burnt down, not when we were there, an old thatched house, a little up, not far from here. I'm accustomed to their smells and sounds and solitudes and things like that, really. But I get lots of people coming to see me and, and cousins. and all. It's quite normal life, really, yes. I was talking to Ronald Blythe. His book, The Time by the Sea, is out now in hardback. For more information about it, go to faber.co.uk. You can make sure you never miss the programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. And the complete Faber podcast archive is also available on SoundCloud. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme. Until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.